Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Narina DeSoma, a fourth-year medical student at the University of Illinois College of Medicine at Peoria. And I'm Hannah Claude, a second-year medical student at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the Power Podcast to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the host of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Hannah and I will host the first of a series of episodes about women in IR with Dr. Agnes Solberg, an interventional radiologist in Bismarck, North Dakota, at CHI St. Alexis Health. She is also a clinical assistant professor of radiology at University of North Dakota. Hannah, I really enjoyed this discussion about obstacles from childhood onward, um, becoming a leader, and using both comedy and authority to navigate gender issues in the workplace. A lot of fun to record overall. Uh, Something else that I really liked was how honest and real Dr. Solberg got with us. You know, she shared such personal experiences about struggles with implicit gender biases, you know, that don't often go mentioned. And I think this podcast is really the beginning of a bigger conversation. Absolutely. I know I can speak for myself and um, I think you as well, Hannah, um, but I'm so grateful for all the supportive male colleagues um, I've encountered throughout my training. Definitely. I 100% agree with that. Um, It is unfortunate, though, that gender bias is a real thing. Um, And I think that this episode helps to address it sort of in like a raw and, you know, very uncensored way. Uh, Generalizations made about both genders are an attempt to facilitate this difficult discussion and are in no way meant to offend or simplify this complex topic. And here it is. Dr. Solberg, thank you so much for being here today with The Sound of IR. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you so far, so much for having me. It's quite an honor to be to be asked to be on this podcast. Thank you. Of course, we're excited for our listeners to hear um, everything that you have to say. So thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your path to interventional radiology? Sure. Um, my path to IRS was actually quite unconventional, probably longer than most people's. Um, I did most of my medical training in the military. I became an internist. And um, after um, two years of working, they told me, the Army told me that I had to go and and, uh, work in a clinic, and I didn't like that very much. I wanted to be a hospitalist. I decided to do a fellowship, and none of the internal medicine fellowships really spoke to me. I liked nuclear medicine. I had to staff out some of the treadmill tests, and I thought that was cool, so I did that instead. I worked for two years after doing a nuclear medicine residency, and I had to leave the military. Well, I left the military, and um, I realized that there were no jobs for nuclear medicine docs who were not radiologists, so it was, well, go back and be a hospitalist or do another residency. And as luck would have it, I was in El Paso, and there was a radiology program there, and I was able to match and was able to complete it in three years because the program director there was pretty amazing and gave me some credit for the nuclear medicine training. During my second year there, I fell in love with IR. And I applied for IR fellowship during my third week of the first rotation, would you believe? Because I was a little off cycle, you know, and um, it was my first block was really in my third year. And I matched and I did interventional radiology. And I love it. What an amazing path to IR. Not many people could say that they've been through all that in order to get to the end. So thanks for sharing all that. And so that kind of brings us to our next question. So where are you now? Like, where do you practice? What are you doing? So I'm actually live in North Dakota in Bismarck. My husband was born in Stanley, North Dakota, and Bismarck is the capital. It's not the biggest town, but it's a bigger town compared compared to uh, Stanley. And so we moved here. And it's a small town. I like it. Essentially, I work in a non-for-profit, non-academic hospital, and I um, am one of three interventional radiologists. The other two are guys. I'm the first female IR in North Dakota, as far as I know, with the research All I've right. done. Yep. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, uh, I'm recruiting a, a, a second, the second female IR to North Dakota. And um, we're actually a tertiary referral center, despite being such a small hospital, because everything here is so spread out and everything is far away. People drive four to five hours just to see us sometimes. 
And even yesterday I had a day off and there was a patient who came for cryoablation and he said he can't do it the week I'm available in two weeks because elk season is, he, he drew an elk tag in Montana. I oh said, my God. Oh, I guess I'll come in on my week off and, you know, freeze your tumor. Oh, wow. <laughs> but um, we really do everything. We offer full spectrum virus services here. We do bread and butter IR. We do intervention on oncology. We do women's health, PAD, triple A's, stroke thrombectomies, and even vertebroplasties, kyphoplasty, everything. That's incredible. Not many practices um, have that full spectrum of cases. So it's wonderful to hear that you've been able to find that in your career. It is very rare. And I think it's because most hospitals have many more physicians. You know, we're in a town of 70,000 people and having three IRs in a town of 70,000 people, I think is a lot. And actually there's another hospital across the street. They have two IRs. They don't quite offer the same well, full, you know, the same spectrum of services, but um, that's five IRs for 70,000 people. So we have to do everything. Otherwise, we won't, we would, there won't be enough cases for us. That's unbelievable. What are your hours like with that kind of a caseload? So it depends. I will say we had four IRs when we started and one of them went to the other hospital, which is okay. Um, so now we have three. We're actually looking through we, for a fourth um, so right now it's a little rough, I won't lie. So we're essentially work about two weeks on and a week off, kind of. Um, but our call weeks are really rough. It's Q3. I mean, it's not uncommon to work 90 hours on call. Oh, wow. So what kind of cases are you seeing kind of day to day? You'd mentioned that you do some bread and butter and some of the, you know, interventional oncology and women's health, etc. So what's sort of like an average day's case or a series of cases? So I would say that on an average day, it varies so much that it's easier to give it an average month. You know, uh-huh. on an average month, we will have four to five triple A's, you know. Um, vertebroplasties are more common, about two to, two to three a week. The interventional oncology is a little more scarce. And I will say between the, between the, th- the three of us, we probably have four or five cases a month. So not a, not a whole lot. Um, but uh, we, we do, we, we can do anything. We offer a lot of procedures. Amazing. One thing I have appreciated so much is the mentorship that you've found, um, that you've found the time to do despite your busy practice, um, and in particular, encouraging women to enter the field. Um, and um, I know Hannah and I are both big fans of your social media accounts, um, your future radiology chicks and women in radiology social media accounts on Facebook and Twitter. Um, so thank you for, for inspiring future generations. Uh, one thing we were wondering is what your motivation was to start them and your vision for those groups. Well, you're welcome. And actually, it was all sort of an accident. Um, I started the Radiology Chicks Facebook group first. And the reason it was called Radiology Chicks, which some people don't like because they're like, oh, it's chicks. And I said, well, it was mm-hmm. meant as a joke and it was informal and it was just me and a couple of my radiology friends. I was in the military, so everybody goes to different places. And the only way really for us to keep in touch was in Facebook. Otherwise, you just tend to lose touch with people. Um, so I was like, well, I, there's only one other radiolo- female radiology resident here in El Paso. So I can reach out to my, the female radiology resident or now radiologist who I've met in my nuclear medicine days. And so it was just them at first, but surely very quickly it grew and expanded. And it was all really by accident. All of a sudden, three years later, we have 3,000 members, and most of whom are actually active in the group, which is uncommon for these kinds of large groups. And Taj, Taj Katapuram, my co-admin, she joined day three. Someone added her on the third day of the group. And a couple of weeks later, I actually asked her to help me out to be my co-admin and I didn't know her at all. I had no idea that she was so heavily involved in ACR. And um, I don't think I could have, met, have chosen a better partner to help me with this endeavor. She has been absolutely indispensable. And, and, and absolutely, she's a wonderful person. I love her. I think we're a pretty good team. And I think that our, our, um, um, our skill sets are a little bit different and we complement each other very well. The Future Radiology Chicks is more recent of a page and it was kind of intended to help female radiology residents interested in radiology to kind of have a safe forum to ask questions and hasn't quite taken off like radiology chicks. And I wonder if they're just afraid to ask questions in the group 
because they don't want to be maybe penalized during the application process or something like that. I'm, I'm just not quite sure. And I think we're going to um, have some more people help us with that, to have more regular posts and try to try to engage those students a little bit more. Um, and even maybe having um, college students who are interested in medicine in that group also or something like that. If you guys have any ideas, you can surely give them to me. I'd be happy to take any ideas. Um, even more recently, we've opened, you know, as you guys have seen on Facebook, there's a public site and now we're much more active on Twitter. And, um, and so we're just growing and growing. And we're actually going to have a meeting later this week about the vision and where we want to take it because it's grown so much that it's not really about just about radiology anymore. We've been contacted by, um, you know, uh, the Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, recently a lawyer, an attorney group um, who kind of on Twitter have uh, faced similar, similar issues. And um, we just think that collaboration would be great. Don't think it has to be all about radiology on the public groups. And I think we can all work together to help us resolve some of these issues with, you know, discrimination and, and um, you know, challenges into getting some of these fields. So just as a quick plug, for those of you who are listening and are very interested in joining these Facebook groups, we've got links in the description box. So you can go ahead and click those and Dr. Solberg can add you to the group. Um, so you had mentioned um, that there was, you know, some pushback with, uh, women in medicine and, and maybe in radiology. The same way that the um, the uh, lawyer group has sort of has some same sentiments and they uh, can sort of, you know, commiserate with some of the posts that are being uh, posted on, you know, radiology chicks and women in radiology. Can you describe kind of what, what they're feeling and, and what, the, what the feeling is in uh, radiology? Sure. So I think some of those have to do with first sexual harassment. Um, and that was, I had a long private conversation with one of the attorneys um, in the attorney group about essentially how she was harassed, you know, and, and um, especially in radiology, a study came out, I think it was Journal of American College of Radiology, I'm not sure, um, that women in radiology, radiologists, female radiologists are more likely to be sexually harassed and are less likely to report it when we see it compared to other medical fields. And the attorney kind of felt the same. Um, she felt that in, in, you know, being an attorney, it was more difficult than other populations. Um, and they were also less likely to, to report and also more likely to be harassed. She didn't have any evidence like I did, but, you know, we kind of commiserated on this. And it's very sad. And I don't know if it's because we think that we really have to succeed in this boys club, um, you know, why can't we report? Why are we not comfortable reporting? Is it because there are fewer, so much, so fewer of us compared to other fields like family medicine or internal medicine where it's much closer or 50-50 or, you know, OBGYN where I think it's greater than 50% women? Um, you know, I don't know why um, we don't want to report. Um, so that, that was one of the things. And the other thing was, the other things were just, you know, the the, the stories of, um, how it's more difficult to advance to a leadership position. And, um, you know, she was saying that uh, her, she was trying to make partner and she was not making partner and she didn't know why. And there was another guy that started a couple of years after her and he was made partner before her. And then she finally asked and they were like, oh, well, we didn't know you were interested in being partner. And she's, what? Of course I was interested in being partner. Why do I work all these crazy hours? And so it's kind of things like that, things that are just not fair. It's uh, unconscious biases, these unconscious biases. I think we can break them. I think there's a large push now, you know, with this Me Too movement, the mm -hmm. he for she and she for she movements, um, that uh, it's more cool, in quotes here, to talk about these things by men and women and to acknowledge them. And it's almost not cool anymore, you know, to perpetrate these, I'm sorry, to, um, what's the word, um, to empower these biases, correct, right? You want to kill the biases. We don't want these biases. We want to be equal, or at least, if not equal, we want to be equitable, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I hope that, like you said, these public movements will have a positive influence on, you know, 
know, future trainees and future young attendings and beyond. One thing that I would love to expand on is the notion of this glass cage that we mentioned previously. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it means and, and how we could potentially overcome it? Sure. So the glass cage is a term that essentially describes to me the barriers that women place upon ourselves that prevents us from moving forward. And I'm not putting the blame on women when I say glass cage. I think that these are things like that we do that are different from men. Um, for example, we don't like to talk about our achievements as much as men. Does that make sense? Yeah. We tend to be overly apologetic or ruminating too much or being too worried in emails and all these things. And these are not definitely our faults, but because we live in the quote unquote man's world, there's a higher percentage of male leaders, right? So if you change some of these little habits, it can be noticed. And I'm not saying that we should all change to be like men, but we have to break through and get more women in leadership positions to change the culture. And once the culture changes, then it maybe it will matter less if how worthy we are in emails. But right now, the culture is as such that you can't write a five-page email. No, even I don't want to read a five-page email, right? So, um, so I, I feel that the glass cage is just self, you know, a way, you know, the, the negative habits that we all have that we can break to be better at what we are. And they're not necessarily be more like men. We all have different bad habits that make us unsuccessful procrastination or whatever that thing is, right? Yes. Um, um, but there are certainly some that are more common with women. Yes, I totally agree. I mean, I've personally experienced that, of course. Like, for example, asking for more responsibility. Sometimes you don't want to come across, across as pushy. But that's true. And, and I think the best, when I was a fellow, the best female, well, the best, the best total medical student we had was female. And she was, I wouldn't, I mean, pushy is not a good word, but she was very confident and aggressive is not the word, word, right word because in females it implies something negative. But I'm going to use it because in this scenario, it's a positive. I'm, I'm, I'm giving her a compliment when I say aggressive. She wanted to do all the cases. She wanted to be involved in everything. She saw all the patients. And during cases, she would say, can I try? Mm-hmm. Yes. No, why, why not? Why, why wouldn't I let you try? Yes, I love that. And I love that. And uh, she did, she matched for, uh, for, I think, a DRIR program in a great institution. So that kind of brings me to a question, just sort of, can you describe what attributes or characteristics do you think, you know, are the most necessary to become a successful IR? They're the same for men and women. I think to be a successful IR, you should be able to First, have empathy and care for the patients. If you don't enjoy spending time with patients, you won't have fun. And be able to communicate well, whether that's with patients, with staff, consultants, um, be able to multitask all day at work. You know, I got a phone call, I got a staff out of clinic patient, and then the ER is calling, and there's the trauma, and then something else is going, and be able to delegate certain tasks, whether that's to the nurse practitioner or one of my colleagues, multitasking all day. And then persistent and dedication. Often we work long hours on call, 95 hours, and you have to just power through if you're fatigued. Um, of course, safety is a concern, and there are three of us. If we feel unsafe, we call a partner. But most of the time, you just have to power through and drink a Red Bull or whatever that is that keeps you awake and take care of the work that you need to get done. Um, I think resilience, that's a good quality. Often, maybe you'll have a not necessarily a negative outcome, but something will happen and it's unexpected and you have to continue the case and take care of the problem you caused. Uh, maybe you will have a bad outcome, whether it was your fault or not, and now you have the next, next patients ready. And you have to put that all behind you and smile and, how are you doing, Mr. Smith? How's your day? You know, um, and pretend like that thing didn't happen until you have time to think about it later and go over the case and, and and spend more time thinking about it, dissect it a little bit. Don't ruminate too long now. Don't spend a week crying about it, but um, learn from it. So I think that the last important characteristics is to remain calm in stressful situations at work. I think in inter interventional radiology, things can turn pretty quickly. And you truly have to have command of your IR suite. There should be no question about who's in charge of that room 
at any time, especially when things are going down, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So even if interventional radiology is able to recruit more women with all these characteristics, is that enough? Do women have to change even more to be successful in this, quote, man's world? I don't think that we need to change very much. And so even the class cage question, I think these are very small changes. And these are, these are changes that we should make just because we want to be better people, better employees, better leaders, better physicians, better radiologists, and not because we're really trying to fit in. I do think that we do need to be in those leadership positions. Women need to be in those leadership positions. And, you know, to get there, some of these changes are necessary. But once we're there, the culture will change because we'll be there representing, so to speak. And I think that it will be so much better. But unfortunately, culture can take generations to change. I mean, look at racism, um, you know, ethnic cleansing, things like this have been happening for years and they're still happening. But I think it's really possible especially in the United States, you know, to change. Absolutely. I, I love the positivity in that. And I think that interventional radiology has come a long way. One thing that I love is the amount of leadership within interventional radiology. While there aren't a lot of female IRs, the ones that are in IR have become very successful. And the opportunity is there. I agree. I agree 100%. There are a lot of opportunities that are available. We just have to ask and volunteer and be more proactive in finding those opportunities. Network. <laughs> Ladies, you have to network. Completely agree. So in terms of working towards, you know, these leadership positions, where where is the line? When, when do women sort of start to fall behind? Like, is it after we've, like, gone through medical school? But even still, I feel sometimes there's pushback even in medical school that you're sort of fallen behind. I really think that we fall behind from the, the moment we were born. Um, I think even the most progressive families in the most progressive schools, girls and boys are being raised a little bit differently. No matter how hard we try, we have these unconscious biases and we treat them differently. I think that even I do it sometimes. My boy falls and he scrapes his knee. I'm like, brush it off. Brush it off, Gus. You're fine. But when Anna falls, I'm like, are you okay? And that's not right. I'm trying to not do this anymore. Um, and then we, we praise girls for being obedient and quiet in schools and boys. Um, boys outbursts are more, um, more often tolerated. Um, we all tend to do this. And um, picture two third grade girls have, having a fist fight. One gets a bloody nose and goes to their principal's office. And you're like, okay, well, that seems okay. I mean, this happens once in a while. But imagine two third grade girls having the same fight, and one girl has a bloody nose, do you have different feelings about the encounter? You should be like, oh, maybe those girls should not be fighting. And if you do, then you have the unconscious bias too, if you think differently about those two situations. And these kinds of feelings are the ones that take generations to fix because we're raised with them. And these things that we're, these habits and, um, that, we're, that we're raised with are very difficult to change, even actively. We still have these feelings, these emotions. I, I completely agree. And I think, um, you know, women are just as um, guilty of this as mm -hmm. men. Um, and that sometimes can be the most um, difficult thing to, to encounter in life when other women put those, put certain expectations on you. It's very true. And I find sometimes that women will also almost have higher expectations for other women, which is just seems ridiculous to me or they'll treat women differently than men, and not in a positive way. Absolutely. Um, any, um, could you give us any more examples of how this sort of plays out, um, especially um, in children growing up, um, just in terms of how they choose to focus their, um, their skills or their attention? For, for me personally, this type of conditioning, and I did grow up in a family where my mom told me I should not play soccer. That's a boy's sport. Um, didn't really stop me from doing the things that I was told I should not do. And I don't know if that's temperament, if are we born with that? Is that just my personality that I didn't do what my mom told me to do? Maybe that's why I have this, 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 uh, very, uh, strong-willed Anna. <laughs> but essentially, I mean, my mom told me I, I never did end up playing soccer, but when I was told snowboarding was for boys and I was out of my mom's reach, I was already in 
um, college, I learned to snowboard. I didn't want to ski, you know. Um, and then because of the soccer thing, I think maybe that's why I played rugby in medical school. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Even stepped it up a notch there from the soccer. Bruises everywhere. I mean, there are no skirts when you're playing rugby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then I was rotating through some, through my, you know, regular rotations. And I really liked radiology. But one of the chief residents in radiology told me I was too stupid to do radiology, just to my face. I left the rotation. It was the third day. I never went back. Wow. I'll tell you. And that was the silliest thing I've ever done. I should not have believed him. But I, I was young and I believed him. And it's just important as we have mentees, as attendings have residents coming through, if you're even the resident and you have medical students rotating, um, it's amazing what our words mean to people and how it affects them. Even technologists and nurses and nurses aides, the thing, they really respect us. And if we don't pay attention to them, if we don't encourage them or even say a kind word, if we say negative things too often, you're it can destroy them. They'll remember this for the rest of their life. Yeah, I'm, I, I agree with you. And I think that's why there's such a, a positive feeling around your Facebook group that you've created and your Twitter account, because you're dispelling some of those negative sentiments that people have heard, people have been told by people above them. And I think that the group is just a great way to sort of vent and also share stories from and not, you know, not be alone in, in this struggle. Yeah, and, and there are other groups too, especially on Twitter with the um, Twitter med chats, um, Twitter women in medicine chat. That's the one um, that happens on Sundays that I'm not really a part of, but I participate. And even last week, I found out that I believed somebody again that I shouldn't do. And it was had to do with the publication. I wanted to uh, submit an image to New England Journal of Medicine three years ago. And someone told me, no, they only take big names. I never submitted it. Well, it turns out that it's utterly false, and now I'm going to submit it. But even after studying radiology chicks and after knowing all these things, three years ago, I'm, I was 37 years old, and I, we still believe these things. You know, we don't double-check every single fact we're told, and we're easily, sometimes we can be easily discouraged. You know, but for me at the time, I was in residency. It was, you know, risks and benefits, you know, time, benefits. And you're in, you know, the benefits of that publication versus the amount of time it would have taken me to submit it and fail. I just didn't have the time to do it. Yeah. So kind of related to what we were talking about before with the, you know, women sort of falling behind, even from a very, very early age. Um, So what kind of happens later? How do you, how does one end up in a leadership position, you know, further on in their career? What are your thoughts on that? I think for women, it's not a very passive path Mm -hmm. compared to men, which is not fair. Um, and I think that if we want to be interested in leader positions, leadership positions, excuse me, more often than not, you won't just be noticed and recognized and offered that position. I think that we have to work at it more. I was fortunate to be volunteered for some leadership positions where I got some experience, which was, which was amazing, um, in my military career early on. Um, but after that, I found that I had to fight for every one of them once I left the military. And um, it, it's what it is, like I said, networking. And, and you really just have to think about what are your goals? Where do you want to be? You need to surround yourself with people and allies, sponsors and mentors that, ha- that can get you there. And again, I think it's a lot more active than what men have to do. You know, they'll find themselves on the board. My husband found himself on the board of my hospital that I've been trying to be on just today. And I was like, really? You're on the board? I've been fighting for this, you know, but mm-hmm. it's happened and it's okay. And don't worry, ladies, I'm on other boards. But um, <laughs> I, I, and don't worry, he does work hard. I'm not saying he did not work hard. <laughs> I didn't even know that I was on his his task list to, to, to do any of these things. But I, I really feel like we need to more actively fight for these positions. So, and I think one of the things is that nobody just looks at us, especially if we have children and they just assume that we don't have time or we don't want to. So mm. I think you have to tell people that you want to, it's mm-hmm. not hard. I just, I wrote my CEO an email and said, Hey, where can we, where can I help? And, you know, I was made to chair a committee done. Mm-hmm. And it, I wouldn't, if I hadn't, you know, approached it in that way, I wouldn't have been the chair of the committee, you know? 
sometimes it can be simple. They just don't realize that we're interested for whatever reason, whether it's unconscious biases or we're new to the organization, they don't know us very well, or they don't know what we've accomplished. Absolutely. Completely agree. Um, you have to work hard. I mean, you have to, you have to work hard and other people have to see your work and they again, won't see it passively. You have, you have to show them what you did in some mm -hmm. way. Not like, Hey, look what I did. But sometimes that's what it takes. It's like, Hey, I was working on this, this, and this, and now we're at this impasse. And can you help me with this? And then they're like, Oh, we didn't even realize that she did all these things. And so sometimes you can sneak it in there. The mm -hmm. things that you've done or accomplished, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. I feel like women, so a lot of, obviously a lot of men have these qualities too, but I feel like one aspect that I really admire in a leader is the ability to um, make a cohesive team and to make everybody feel like a part of it and to bring people together. And I feel like women, a lot of women have that naturally. And so I feel like we are well-suited innately for leadership. Um, in that sense. So, you know, I agree with you. Um, I think that um, I think a lot of women do well in leadership positions. And I, I don't know, I tend to, I tend to find it very easy to delegate tasks um, and to trust people with tasks. And I think that's a very important part of being a good leader is not trying to do everything yourself or micromanaging everybody else's work. Um, you know, if that makes any sense. And I think that women are also more open to other people's ideas. They don't have a preconceived notion um, at the beginning of the meeting of the result they want. And they are more open-minded to other people's ideas, you know, in attaining the, the the result that they want from the meeting or from the task at hand. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, just like in the article that you wrote for um, IR Quarterly, I mean, it you had stated, and it's and there's many studies that show that a diverse workforce, um, you know, fosters creativity, innovation. Like you said, there's different perspectives. There's you know different attributes and qualities that are just innately different between um, some men and some women. So when you have a team of you know different kinds of people, you can you know be more successful. So I have a question for you. What sort of specific skills and perspectives do you think that female IRs can bring to the table when they work in these? you know, different groups with uh, men and women? So I, we've talked about some of these things before. Um, I think that, you know, multitasking again is one of them, remembering multiple tasks. Um, I think we think about all the possibilities before making a decision, for example. Um, sometimes this can be a crutch because we'll tend to ruminate it, think too much before making a decision. But I think that, again, we find it easier to, to, to think about all the possibilities and the, where they can lead before making a decision, if that makes any sense at all. It makes sense to me. Um, I think that we are also empathetic to family needs and other women. Um, and, you know, women are usually the primary medical decision makers for families. And so female doctors understand how the medical decision makers of families think because we're women. Mm -hmm. We know what that woman is going through, especially if we do have children. Um, or have to, you know, do our second shift at home. Um, I know you guys just heard my husband vacuuming, so he's doing the second shift today. But <laughs> for many women, they do the second shift, and that's it. Um, but we, we know all the tasks we have to juggle, and that makes it easier for us to make medical and business decisions because we know how women think. And so, for example, even decisions are like, how do we check in patients for the procedure? A woman, I really feel, should be on that committee because they, will th they won't think about the single guy who is coming in for one lab draw. They'll think about a mom who has her six kids with her in tow because she couldn't find a babysitter and has lost one car seat and she can't find one kid and needs to check in and is going crazy. And maybe, you know, an app would be great for that lady. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so with the different perspectives you know that women IRs can bring to the table have you noticed that I mean also with the advent of some of the newer IR techniques such as uh, uterine fibroid embolization have you ever noticed that uh, female patients would request you or prefer to have you as a female IR versus a male colleague sure I think I, I, I have had women request me especially for biopsies involving 
you know, the female areas. Um, but um, also for more delicate biopsies, like on the cheek area, um, where we don't, they didn't want to go to plastic surgeon or, in, you know, for an open biopsy. Um, but also I've had some patients who come all the time for procedures like paracentheses and things like that that request me. And I think that it's, we treat patients differently, but I don't know if it's a female thing or just the way I do it. Does that make sense? Maybe a different man will do it like me and they would pick that guy. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, I, I, we all, all three of us do have patients that request us, but I, I do have to say, even though I've been here for a year, I I do have a, I do have a little following in uh, my patients. So, um, we, um, it, it works out great. We're able to, to help the patients and give them, give them what, what they need. I, um, I, I just wanted to briefly go back to one of the things you said because it struck a chord with me. I love how you called um, the uh, work at, in the house the second shift. I, I just think that's great. I've never heard that before. And um, one piece of advice that I heard from another physician was the most important decision that you make in your whole life is who you choose as your life companion. Um, because that determines a lot about how you can, um, about what you do in your second most important decision, decision, which is the career you choose. So um, I just appreciated that so much. Um, and I just had to give that a special shout out. <laughs> uh, you know, my husband works full time. He's an emergency room doctor at the same hospital. We decided that we need to, to work at the same hospital so we can communicate easier in case the kids need to get picked up. There's a school across the street now, so everything's a little bit closer. Um, and he's a great ally. I mean, he's watching the kids right now, so I can do this recording in the evening. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm also an ally for him for some of some of his hobbies. He went to Greenland, Greenland for a month. Yes, Greenland, not the pretty one, the frozen <laughs> one. Okay. The drive from the southern tip to the northern tip and back. I have no idea why. Negative 40 Fahrenheit. <laughs> And he was gone for a month. And so we, we support each other's endeavors. In addition to our regular daily jobs, we have these second jobs and then the third job, which is the, you know, this, and with the second job being the second shift being the family, right? Um, so you do have to find a partner that will, that will work well with you and support not only your primary job career, which is for me, interventional radiology, your second career, which for me is the radiology checks um, and a few of my hobbies. And for him is, his what is it medical adventuring physician <laughs> stuff. um and 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 just being mom and dad for our kids and you know sister and mother you know brother daughter um whatever that is for you guys and it's very important the balance is very difficult i won't lie um it's very difficult and um i don't think that intervention or you know i don't think that women who are interested in interventional radiology should not do it because they don't think that they'll be able to spend enough time with their family. There are different types of interventional radiology jobs that are available and they're not all like mine. I chose this job because this is the job I wanted and this is what fits my, my lifestyle. And this is what I love. But for some people, an outpatient clinic job may be the thing for them and 20 weeks vacation. And that's okay. And there are jobs like that available, you know? And um, so you just have to figure out what it is about interventional radiology that they love which part and what's the most important to you when you choose your job you know I don't know if that made sense but I hope so oh yes it did oh I appreciate that so much um and you mentioned you have to you have to really know um what you want and so I'm curious um what what what's your favorite part about about IR my favorite part about IR especially coming from internal medicine um and then doing diagnostics and then going back to IR is the patients. I really enjoy talking with the patients. And when we're not busy, you know, even if I'm doing a paracentesis, I don't necessarily leave the room after the putting needle in, put the needle in or the catheter in like some people. Um, I could. I could just leave. The tech is there. The nurse is there. And when it's really busy and I'm the only person there, I do have to leave because I have to start another procedure. But, but I, I love talking to the patients and we have relationships with them. Mm-hmm. They come we see them in clinic and I'm always upset when I can't see my patient in clinic because I'm scrubbed in and someone else has to see them um, because I really love that relationship with the patients and their families. 
I love talking to them <laughs> and helping them and being able to provide something. They're always so happy. They don't have to drive 10 hours to Minneapolis. You know I mean? That's the next closest hospital where they can be helped. Absolutely. I think that's wonderful. What, uh, what procedures uh, do you enjoy most? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. I <laughs> honestly, the procedures I enjoy the most are the ones I don't do all the time. If I haven't done it in a while, then I, I like, I like to do it. If, if that makes sense. So it sounds like work is pretty, pretty uh, varied and it keeps you busy. Never bored day. It does. Actually, I'm going to add one more thing. The second stroke we do, um, even though we're not neurointerventional radiologists, I'm sorry, we're not neuro IRs. Um, we do thrombectomies for strokes and those are the most rewarding patients because you put them on the table and you tell them that they can die from having a hemorrhage in the brain because they've just gotten TPA. And then you start to put the catheter up there and you take the thrombus out and they can't move the right side. They can't talk. By the time they get off the table, they can move and talk sometimes. That's incredible. Wow. And I have to say, you get them back to the patient's families and they're just tearful with joy and everybody hugs and lives <laughs> are going, you know, and I mean, I, that's very rewarding. You know, and some of these are young patients, we even, you know, in their 20s sometimes, um, you know, maybe from birth control pills or whatnot. Um, man, these are really rewarding cases. That's, that's just an incredible outcome. And it's just, it's amazing what IR uh, encompasses. The fact that you have such variety, the scope is so broad, and that you really get to do it all. And you get to do life-changing procedures too. Like, you know, there is the bread and butter of IR, but there are also the cases, like you said, Dr. Solberg, where you've radically changed someone's life, like 180 degrees change. And that's, that's such a special thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I do. Um, those are those are the best cases. Those really are because a lot of IR is not like that. A lot of the IRs is is you know you see the you know do a paracentesis and the patient can't get a liver transplant and you know and you see them over and over. Um, maybe they can get a tips. Maybe they can't um, because for whatever reason and um, and that those those cases are frustrating. You know we we help a lot of cancer patients who are end stage usually. Sometimes by the time we we see them and we can pally, you know, provide some palliative therapies, but we can't cure them. And the, those are hard. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, some of the venous axis that we put in, some of those, those, a lot of those patients die, you know, and that's hard. I mean, I look at the obituaries now. I live in a small town. So I, I look at the obituaries like my grandma used to look at, except I do it on my phone. Um, and, um, you know, every couple of weeks I see some patient that we've treated in some way. Um, and so it, so, so it is great to see those, those good cases, you know? Um, but I, I, for when I, I, um, for the, for the pediatric, you know, interventional radiologists, I mean, I could not do pediatrics. I, it just takes a special kind of person to help kids. And so to all of you that are there out there, thank you. That's all I can say. Thank you. So kind of going off the, in a similar vein about sort of the hard part of being a doctor and some of the not as happy um, times. What are some of the obstacles that you face in your current role as an IR? Well, I, uh, I mean, I, I do live in North Dakota, so we have these uh, farmers here who are older and really just are not sure about women wearing mm -hmm. white coats and what is my role. Um, and um, even one time, I mean, I spent probably 45 minutes discussing a case. It was a leg. It was a PAD case. So it was like a netherectomy, and I, maybe I put a stent. I can't remember exactly, but you know, was, he was going to get an amputation if we didn't do this. If I didn't do this, and so I explained everything to him and his wife. The next day, did the procedure, and after the procedure, I explained them. Everything went great. You have pulses. You haven't had pulses for eight years, mm -hmm. you know? and uh, and I was so happy and high five the wife, and <laughs> then I leave, and I and I'm all like. I'm high as a kite and I go wash my hands outside the room because he was on some sort of weird precautions. Can't remember exactly. But then he goes to his wife, who was that gal? Was she here to bring me my lunch? Oh, <laughs> so funny. And she goes to him. He goes, no, that was your doctor. She's the one who wrote or you wrote or she's a rotor wrote or wrote your leg. <laughs> what? <laughs> she touched my leg. 
Oh. Get girls with the rotor rotor. Next, she's going to come after my prostate. <laughs> and, yeah. and this is still a struggle almost every day um, where there's still disbelief that women can be doctors or especially once we get to the you know, procedural specialties. You know, sur- all surgeons deal with this. All female surgeons, I'm sure, deal with this every day as well. You know, radiologists and urologists, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, um, neurosurgeons, orthopedics, you know, vascular surgeons—all those specialties that have very few women. Um, it's not easy. It's not. It's not easy. Um, and even consultants will call, and they're like, "Oh, can I speak with one of the interventional radiologists?" Well, yeah, this is uh, Dr. Solberg. No, 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 one of the interventional radiologists. Like, yep, I'm an interventional radiologist. Oh, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so. So how do you how do you deal with that? I mean, it it seems like it could get quite annoying and frustrating. So what is what is your personal you know how do you get over that? Comedy. Uh-huh. I, make jokes. <laughs> I make jokes. I mean, it's uh-huh. really the only way because alienating the patient or just telling you're not saying you're not going to treat them is not the answer. You're you're going to help the patient. You're going to treat the patient. Um, if they really don't want you, then I won't treat the patient. You know, but mm-hmm. usually I can convince them or make them laugh and they get over it pretty quickly. So we had, I had a female patient for a vertebroplasty. I saw her in a clinic and uh, explained the whole procedure. She comes two weeks later and I'm saying, hey, Mrs. So-and-so, you're here for your vertebroplasty. And she says, oh, great. And then uh, my male nurse comes in to take her blood pressure. She's like, is he going to do it? I'm like, well, he's never done one before, but I'm sure you can convince him. <laughs> <laughs> And then he goes to her, she's the doctor. She goes, oh, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's, uh, but again, I mean, and, and nope, everything went great and no problems. So that's how I usually deal with it. I make some kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. And that kind of ties back nicely to how we were talking before about resilience. It's, it's that, you know, give and take, uh, understanding the situation and, and being able to, you know, uh, roll with it, I guess you could say. Yep. Exactly. And, but sometimes you have to be firm. And, and, um, and I talked earlier about owning the room when things are going down. I am the one in charge and I'm the one responsible for the patient. Ultimately, it doesn't matter who else is in the room or what their role is. The room is mine and the patient is mine. Um, and I know that it's a team effort and all these things, but ultimately it's my responsibility, if that makes sense. I'm the one who's going not, who's, who won't be sleeping at night if something goes wrong. Um, and so I, I have encountered situations where especially male nurses or CRNAs have have not followed my directions um, and in those situations I am very firm and uh, and I don't let it go if that makes sense um, because there, there, when things are going down there is no time for jokes or anything like that it's they're going to do what I ask or they're going to be out of the room you know and that's a man surgeon wouldn't even be questioned if they acted like that you know and so I think it's, it's, it's appropriate to want, you know, in that kind of a scenario. And uh, so I've had, to, I mean, I've had to be firm several times and instructions were followed. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, if, even if a patient doesn't recognize you as the doctor or et cetera, et cetera, at the end of the day, you are the one that took care of that patient. And so that's kind of how I've tried to go forward. You know, if I've ever been assumed to be like a lesser role, just because I'm a female, I think to myself at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to be the one caring for that patient. And then that's satisfaction enough. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I agree. I also, I also think that patients, I don't know why. And I, I came to this realization just a couple of weeks ago um, that patients will I don't know, they seem to like me or respect me more when I give positive remarks about other doctors. Mm-hmm. When I give, you know, like the doctor they've seen, um, maybe the urologist, and I'm like, oh, I love working with Dr. Turchenko. You know, he's a great urologist and we work so well together and things like that. I mean, their faces just light up mm-hmm. and they trust me more, it seems like. When I say that we work well together, I don't know. Um, but um, maybe just, I, maybe I shouldn't have to do that. But I don't know. I don't know how that builds confidence that some, I'm saying that some male doctor and I work well together now they trust me more. Sure. Yeah. And another component absolutely is uh, maybe um, like 
them knowing that there is some cohesive team behind their care too, you know, that that's comforting regardless. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes really think that it's just because it's a guy, but <laughs> yeah, very well. Could Whatever be. it takes at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. So as our last sort of wrap up question for you, Dr. Solberg, what words of advice would you offer to women who are doubting themselves about a career choice? That's a very good question. Um, I think that no girl or woman um, should ever be discouraged from any career choice unless she's physically incapable of doing it. You know, um, I think that we should never tell someone they can't do something. Never. I think it's very damaging to that, in, to that individual. And I, you know, as advice for our girls and women, I think that if we are told something like that, we should just not believe it. It's not true. Mm-hmm. You can't do anything that you put your mind to it. Um, you just have to have some grit and resilience and perseverance and you can attain it. Maybe you'll have to work a little harder. Um, maybe you'll have to, or sometimes just a little smarter, um, take the right path to your destination. But really, I think that no one should be discouraged from any choice. Um, and um, if they are, that they should should they should not believe it they should they should go forth for their goal to their goal thank you for that insight and that wonderful conclusion to this uh, incredible episode um dr solberg it's been a pleasure having you on the sound of ir podcast thank you so much for taking the time from your busy busy ir practice um to inspire us and um all future radiologists and women in medicine in general thank you so much for having me this is pretty awesome and i and i really do enjoy your your podcast well, thank you again, and we hope to um, to see you again on in the future on the on the podcast. Anytime. That's it for this episode. If you want to follow Dr. Solberg on Twitter, her handle is at Agnes Solberg. That's one word. And if you would like to follow the Women in Radiology Twitter, the handle is at Radiology Chicks. One word. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing UFI, carotid artery stenosis tips, and more. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. And if you're practicing IR who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time. Thank you.